0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech. He stayed at MIT and now leads a robotic mobility group in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. He's been a visiting scientist nearby at uh, JPL and also at the National Technical University in Athens, uh, Greece. He's also led programs for numerous agencies among the NASA, Army and the Ford Motor Company. Uh, several years ago, he was chosen as one of only 16 people who, quote, redefined science. By a magazine called Seed, which is a magazine that focuses on uh, 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 on uh, writing about the impact between of science on society. His area, uh, his research area, is in design, and control, sensing, and motion of robots as they travel on different terrains. So, Carl also spends many of his evenings writing, and I don't mean writing proposals; I mean writing fiction. Uh, he's uh, he also has. Uh, two fantastic books out that you can purchase out of the corner at your local Barnes & Noble. So I'll give him just a brief <laughs> plug. Uh, so...
1: I <laughs> didn't uh, ask him to do this, by uh, the way. Right. totally I, I've, I've unsolicited.
0: To Carl, I met this morning. Uh, so, the uh, first book is uh, 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 called Expeditions and is described as beautifully written. Outstanding Research and a Definite Keeper by Publishers Weekly. And his latest book is a collection of short stories. And it's titled, The Nature of Human Romantic Interactions. And as of this weekend, it has uh, a aggregate of five-star rating on Amazon. I checked. You uh, also great reviews by literary critics. Anyways, so Carl is here today uh, to talk about uh, interactions between robots and their terrestrial and extraterrestrial environments. Non-fiction. non <laughs> M- Mostly non-fiction. Right.
1: <clears throat> well, thank you, Ivan, uh, for the introduction. So most of this will be non-fiction. The, fiction, the parts that are fiction will be revealed tomorrow for those of you that are staying for the uh, remainder of the workshop. This is sort of um, the rose-colored glasses view of uh, some engineering methods that we can uh, essentially derive from some of the techniques that um, Jose described in the previous talk and sort of translate them to practical equations and tools that we can use for modeling the interaction of, let's say, machines and devices with, um, with geomaterials. And specifically what I'm going to focus on is uh, rover mobility, because that's essentially our canonical example. But we have other applications um, in this area in things like, let's say, drilling and coring, things like excavation, so related tasks, we can say. Okay, so an engineering perspective on this whole thing. So, you know, what's an engineer's job at JPL? And I have always am envious when I come out to JPL and I see the types of engineering tasks that you guys get to focus on. Uh, So this is um, uh, an MSL, I believe, analog rover, we can say, uh, which has obviously been already designed and and, kind of approved and ready to be shipped. But let's take a step back and imagine, you know, before this rover was built, what would the design problem look like from a a, a blank page point of view? So we have the general problem of designing a vehicle that can achieve, we can say, robust mobility on Mars. Don't get stuck, right? There's a number of ways we could accomplish this. and one of the fundamental questions is, well, what should the running gear be, right? Should we have a wheeled vehicle, a tracked vehicle, a vehicle with legs, for example? Um, and drilling down, if once we, let's say, choose one of these running gear types, well, what should the general size of these running gear elements be? I mean, how many elements should we have? How many feet? How many wheels? How big should they be? Um, going down a step further, you know, one of the, some, what are some of the um, engineering requirements that are going to fall out of that selection? So what might, for example, uh, the nominal torque be for the actuators that are going to drive these running gear? Uh, What would the peak power requirements be? And then some, let's say, derived performance requirements. What's the obstacle crossing performance? How does that influence the suspension configuration, the steering mechanism? So there's a bunch of questions related to this design problem that, uh, in fact, are quite difficult to answer from, let's say, Engineering Mechanics 101. So you don't learn how to address these problems, let alone answer them in, let's say, standard mechanical engineering, um, certainly not you know, geotechnical engineering, but standard coursework. Um, so how do we address these problems? That's the fundamental question that, as an engineer, I want to learn the answer to. How do we address these problems in a, in a, in a principled manner? Okay, so <coughs> Jose did a very nice job introducing, let's say, a lot of the, the, the fundamentals that lead us to f- tools like finite element techniques um, I won't spend too much time discussing these types of techniques in detail. I want to give, um, uh, well, essentially just enumerate, let's say, the classes of approaches by which we could tackle the problem on the previous slide, all right? So what are these general classes? And I've kind of lumped these to, some of these together by convenience um, more so than really their, their uh, relatedness. But let's generally divide classes of approaches into three areas. We can say empirical methods as one general class of approach. Um, computational methods, uh, with a big caveat there that, again, these two methods are quite distinct. Finite element type techniques as illustrated by this um, uh, sexy picture of a, of a wheel rolling on soil, and discrete element methods, which is illustrated by this picture of uh, uh, grains interacting, granular material interacting with itself. And then lastly, parametric methods, which is what I'm going to focus on in this talk, and specifically this subdiscipline we can say, called Terra Mechanics, which is specifically focused on interaction of vehicles with soils, okay? So, um, let me try to characterize these uh, methods very, very briefly, discuss, discuss uh, some of the pros and cons. So, um, empirical techniques. Uh, you know, if someone gave me the, 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 the opportunity to choose uh, without any other implications which technique I would, I would rely on if, you know, if I had a choice, I would always choose empirical methods. Uh, if I could do testing, which I was convinced was relevant to my site of interest, so my application domain, um, and I could do enough testing to span, let's say, the design parameter space, right, so that I could interpolate rather than extrapolate, Uh, this is the best of all possible worlds because you have something that looks like the answer um, and you can use that information to design your system and do trade studies, et cetera. Uh, The fact is we almost never, and in practice, let's say, well, almost never, we won't rule anything out, we almost never have enough data uh, the ability to collect data at, let's say, uh, sufficient density in the parameter space, um, and with, let's say, enough fidelity and correlation to our, our site of interest to make this type of approach realistic, all right? So we just can't do enough empirical testing. We don't have the data. Um, now, I have a picture here which shows a, uh, uh, an Army grunt in the field doing some testing with what's called a cone penetrometer, The Army does do empirical testing and, in fact, has amassed a wide body of empirical test data to do their mobility prediction for their Army vehicles. So these are big vehicles, tanks, armored personnel carriers, et cetera. The Army's been working on this sort of thing for 30, 40, 50 years, and they have a lot of money to put behind it. Um, We don't have that luxury when we're studying problems related to planetary surface mobility, as folks this morning have already discussed. So this really scales poorly with problem complexity, all right? Um, Jose mentioned finite element modeling, um, which is a technique basically for propagating stresses uh, among nodes, as illustrated again by this picture here. Discrete element methods, which I've kind of bundled together here under the the rubric of computational techniques. Uh, Really, the only similarity is that you use computation in both of them. But uh, ignore that for a moment. uh, Discrete element models are sort of a um, Lagrangian mechanics view of... uh, Uh, modeling, generally speaking, granular materials. And so this is illustrated by this picture here. Um, We'll get into the issues, uh, pros and cons of these different types of techniques um, over the next days, but in principle you can use these methods to model interactions of vehicles running on surfaces, et cetera. Um, In practice, there are some uh, questions about, A, how these methods scale, again, computationally. Uh, These can be quite computationally intensive. Um, but more importantly, uh, fundamentally, how we define constitutive relations for these types of techniques. So Jose touched on this quite nicely already. Um, the, philosophic, the philosophical questions that he described for FEAs I think also apply to some of these DEM methods. The question of how we define constitutive relationships between particles that are valid at various scales and in various regions of a parameter space of interest are really sort of open questions in the literature. So this is um, obviously kind of a superficial and quick description of candidate approaches for addressing this problem of, you know, modeling, let's say, uh, system-surface interaction. So I'm going to talk about um, parametric methods and Terra mechanics. So this workshop that we're at, X sort of takes its name from this field of Terra Mechanics, which is really an amalgamation of soil mechanics and mechanical engineering. It's looking at the interface between a mechanical system that mechanical engineers would study vehicles, drills, things like that, with a, uh, 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 a geomaterial. So something that a soil mechanician would know a lot about soils, et cetera. Regolith, as we should say during the next week. Um, and this is this has proven to be a relatively good idea over the past, again, 30, 40, 50 years, really since it was this field was sort of uh, founded in the 1940s or 50s. Um, and I say that with um, a caveat. Uh, The methods that we're going to talk about today are inherently approximations and simplifications. Um, What we're attempting to do is develop, let's say, relatively simple models of this interaction phenomena that are going to apply across a very wide range of conditions and a wide range of materials. And so you can probably think already at the back of your mind, well, you know, huh, a kind of uh, uh, low relative density dry soil is quite different than a saturated compact clay. And that's absolutely true. But we're going to try to model these things with the same sets of equations. Um, and so inevitably we'll be able to do that with varying degrees of success. Um, and again, in an effort to make these relations somewhat simple, we're going to ignore lots of important effects that we probably shouldn't. Um, things like loading rate, things like soil state, as we've already mentioned. Um, things like the effects of material transport, very basic things that we observe, you know, even driving our cars. Let's say you're stuck by the side of the road in a ditch and you spin your tires and you see soil flying out behind you. You know, these aren't the sorts of things we can model with tear mechanics. But what we can do is uh, uh, come to a principled understanding of, let's say, trade studies, comparisons between choice A and choice B in some design space. So if we're, with our blank sheet of paper, trying to design a vehicle, we can have a principled way to do that. And then hopefully even um, numerical simulation for, let's say, p- performance prediction on some sort of tactical level and probably in some sort of nominal conditions, okay? So, um, as you can sense, probably what I'm hinting at is that there are some shortcomings to this general approach, but I'm not going to tell you any of those today. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the good things. All right, so Terra Mechanics is uh, uh, really an engineering science that um, studies this interaction between mechanical systems, vehicles, um, uh, soil mechanics, so in the, in the realm of geotechnical engineering, and we fall somewhere here in the middle. And how do we do this? What we essentially do is we abstract wonderful, uh, kind of classical soil mechanical models to an engineering domain. So, this is a good example here uh, on this slide where we have a, a classical um, strip loading problem that does come from, you know, Engineering Mechanics 101. And somebody at some point said, well, you know, that really looks like the loading that we might observe under uh, the treads of this big tracked personnel carrier. And so that's essentially what we do is we use the tools that we would use to analyze this type of problem and essentially map it on to this other vehicle problem, okay? Um, Another example, we have uh, an illustration of a bearing capacity problem. So we're trying to maybe analyze uh, a foundation or a footing of a building, right? And we say, well, you know, this, 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 we can use this same type of analysis maybe to look at uh, the forces and moments that are going to be exerted on, you know, an implement for 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 material transport for earth moving as we move it through a soil, or even at a smaller scale, we can look at the forces that are going to arise on uh, from the interaction of a lug or a grouser, so from one of the rover wheels as it digs into the soil. So again, this mapping from kind of classical soil mechanics to engineering applications. Okay, so here's a brief outline of what I'm going to talk about um, over the next 25 minutes or so. This is M.G. Becker. He is uh, widely recognized as sort of the father of Terra Mechanics. Um, Most of the work that he did was in the context of military vehicles, larger military vehicles. Uh, And now we're talking about small systems, and so Some of these questions of scaling between these large vehicles that this work was originally developed for and these small vehicles that we're interested in, smaller, uh, are kind of poorly understood, but this is a picture of um, Becker in happy times with his um, lunar roving vehicle, which he was one of the uh, uh, primary, I don't know if inventor, that might be too strong a word, but clearly did a lot of the analysis for this vehicle, and a lot of the uh, analysis that he did um, ended up in the final design, which was pretty successful. Okay, so I'll talk about the fundamental relationships um, that are of interest in terror mechanics. And there's really only two, a pressure sinkage relationship and a relationship between the shear stress and the shear displacement at the interface. And then I'll probably just kind of gloss over some of these other effects that are important and are sort of handled in, oh, not an ad hoc fashion, but sort of as add-ons. And then lastly, we'll go through a a case study, which is uh, uh, somewhat superficial just due to our time constraints, but hopefully will be a little bit illuminating. Okay. So one of the first things we want to understand when we're looking at this vehicle mobility problem or a vehicle design problem in general is the relationship between the ground pressure that you're exerting on a soil surface and the amount of sinkage that you're going to experience, alright? And I'll explain why that's important in a minute. But bear with me for a minute and, and, and accept the fact that it is important. Um, this relationship here probably goes back to Terzaghi based on an observation um, that says that the, the deformation resulting in a soil um, from the exertion of a normal pressure follows some kind of power law. And we have a diagram here which explains what some of these um, elements are. And then Becker said, okay, well, maybe we can do a little bit better than that and try to take it from, let's say, an empirical relation to what we might call a semi-empirical relation, which I interpret to mean just a relation which has some empirical components and some, uh, let's say, um, components that are inherent to a material, right? And so he defined a similar relation which uh, uh, replaces constant K with some term that has what we might call a cohesion-dependent soil coefficient, a friction-dependent soil coefficient, and some uh, geometric property of the vehicle. And, um, and as we know from our last talk, these two properties relate back to the failure of soil. So this sort of makes sense. So what do we do? You know, how do we apply this relationship to a wheel? This doesn't look too much like a wheel. Um, Well, if you think about it, if you had a large wheel with, let's say, a modest amount of deformation on the soil, then in fact this picture might look pretty similar to the case that's experienced in practice because that interface area at the bottom of the wheel is going to look fairly close to a a flat section, all right? So we might end up with some uniform normal load, uh, sorry, stress distribution at the bottom of that uh, wheel. If you think about smaller wheels, and this is what the, the picture down here at the bottom of this slide illustrates, we have sort of a different um, scenario because now we're trying to essentially wrap this pressure sinkage relation around this curved surface. Um, And this is essentially what we do to calculate the relationship at a given point on this wheel-terrain interface, uh, the relationship between um, a normal stress and a sinkage. And so if you look at this relation, all we've done is taken this Becker equation, and so here's the term uh, that I described relating to let's say this constant K, which is going to govern or scale, we can say, this relationship. And so there there we are there. And then this um, sinkage Z, which here is just defined as some uh, scalar distance normal to a free surface, is now wrapped around uh, the surface of this interface here, right? So this is just uh, a geometric transform. And we've sort of generalized this problem. In this figure, we can see some evidence of as Jose referred to the elastoplastic plastic properties of soil, we have some clearly some pl- significant plastic deformation illustrated here, and some elastic rebound uh, illustrated by the fact that, you know, we don't have a trailing edge exactly at the bottom dead center of this. We always rebounded a little bit to this angle theta b, all right? And so we make this general formulation, where, in order to avoid, let's say, a stress discontinuity at the free surface, we'll define some region of uh, some location of maximum stress, and then we'll kind of build up to that maximum stress, and then come back down, okay? So why is this important? Well, as it turns out, understanding the relationship between pressure and sinkage for a vehicle is probably the most fundamental thing, uh, or let's say one of the two most fundamental, thi- fundamental things you would want to know. Uh, and the reason for this is actually quite simple. Um, the sinkage that a vehicle experiences in the ter- terrain largely governs the motion resistance from the terrain as the vehicle is moving. So look at the stress field here at the interface. We can decompose it into two resultant forces. The vertical force is simply balancing the weight on that wheel. But this horizontal force is pushing back against us as we're trying to move, all right? So obviously if we're trying to develop a system that's robust and has high mobility, we probably want to minimize this resistance force, so all right?
0: You want something that sinks
1: less. Generally speaking, yes, but not always. So we'll get into the um, the coupling effects in a minute, but um, if you think about it from, let's say, a work-energy perspective, we're going to do work on the soil to compact it, and we're going to see that as an energy loss which we could otherwise use to uh, drive further or run instruments, et cetera. Okay? So this is, generally speaking, not necessarily a positive thing. I want to make one other note about sinkage. Um, there are two sinkage phenomena that we can discuss. One is static sinkage. So if you set the vehicle down on a surface, how much would it deform the terrain? All right? And this is illustrated here, and this is what's governed by the equations that I just showed. There's another phenomenon which we can call dynamic sinkage or slip sinkage, which, again, anyone who's driven a car has probably experienced. As the slip, let's say the relative velocity between the wheel and the terrain surface increases, we have some additional sinkage effect. And this is governed by some other equations which aren't shown here. So we have some combination of these two effects. So this is the pressure-sinkage relationship. And we can show in some very simple plots. These are um, uh, somewhat obvious, but for uh, this is... um, Um, a reasonable range of parameters, I think, for a planetary rover. I can't remember exactly. Uh, But as we increase our load from 50 to 100 to 150 newtons, this is the load in Z. Obviously, our sinkage increases, and our motion resistance increases correspondingly. And as we increase our slip ratio, so again, the relative motion between the wheel and the interface, uh, again, our sinkage increases and our motion resistance increases. So at the moment, we're thinking, based on this, we would say, well, just have as little sinkage as possible. And that's often a good idea but not always the best idea. I'll show you in a moment. So that's pressure sinkage. First thing we want to know. The second thing we want to understand is the relationship between the shear stress and the shear displacement of the soil. So why is this important? Well, um, Engineering Mechanics 101, we learn about this notion of uh, the no-slip condition and pure rolling. Okay, Pure rolling is a wonderful thing. We have a wheel rolling with no relative motion on a rigid surface. rigid wheel on a rigid surface. Uh, This isn't how the interaction mechanics works for deformable terrain. So think of terrain uh, more as um, a spring, okay? We generate a force in the body of the soil uh, only through some displacement, only by some displacement, all right? So it's the relative motion between some running gear, a wheel, a track, or a leg. The relative motion between the running gear and the soil that creates shearing and allows us to essentially push off the soil, all right? And this is what this figure down here attempts to illustrate. This is a a close-up view of a wheel, I believe, with grousers. And we see some evidence, even though you don't see it in the static shot, some evidence of um, a failure zone in the soil. There's an important point here. This is kind of interesting. The failure zone is going to occur in the body of the soil. And that's what we want. So one question that people sometimes ask is, well, why why do wheels have grousers or lugs? Why do we need these things? And it's actually a really good question. And we can imagine sending a rover to Mars with smooth wheels, right? So why don't we want to do that? If we send a rover to Mars with smooth wheels, uh, what would almost certainly happen is that uh, failure would be governed by, essentially, friction. So the friction the, at the interface between the wheel surface and the soil surface. So whatever the coefficient of friction between, let's say, in a smooth aluminum wheel and a particle of you know, regolith would be, that would be what's going to govern our uh, ability to generate thrust. That's probably quite low, all right? Um, If we think of it in a more Coulomb sense, we're relying on sigma-tan- phi, where phi is now this coefficient of friction between these two materials. Um, The addition of uh, lugs or grousers allows us to engage the soil so that the failure occurs in the body of the soil. So what does that allow us to do? It allows us to exploit some of the um, other effects that are occurring in the material itself, so namely the soil cohesion, and the internal friction angle. Again, this is sigma tan phi, but phi is now a property of the material itself. So that's why we have grouser. We want to engage the soil. It's maybe not the only reason, but it's probably it's the dominant reason. Okay. Um, and this is just an illustration showing that you know these stress fields exist, um, as Jose has already described, and we let them you know uh, th- go wherever they might, and depending on the um, uh, the state of the wheel, the relative slip conditions, the velocity, for example, we can have quite different um, uh, stress conditions beneath this wheel. All right. So we want to try to model this and understand it. So the generation of this shear stress, the relationship between shear stress and shear deformation is what leads to traction. All right. Now instead of these normal forces at this interface, uh, let's look at forces that are tangential to the interface. All right. Um, and I think I already mentioned this, that the failure of the soil is going to be uh, estimated or or kind of governed by this mohr coulomb failure criteria. So we have some, generally speaking, some uh, for a cohesive soil, some cohesive component, and for a a frictional soil, some uh, coefficient of internal friction. Okay. So let's, um, again, think semi-empirically. So the non-empirical part is this failure criteria. We can measure these properties of soil. We can say this is an upper bound on the amount of stress that this soil region will be able to tolerate. And then as empiricists, let's just put in this scaling factor. So tau max, which comes from more Coulomb, and then some scaling factor, a decaying exponential 1 uh, minus e to the negative something over something, which is going to tell us that fall off, right? And the something over something is actually uh, interesting. It's an inherent property of the soil. So what's going to govern that rate of fall off <coughs> is what we call the the, the shear deformation modulus, which tells us how much relative motion we need at the interface in order to fully develop our traction. Okay, and this is a purely physical um, uh, quantity, as you might imagine. A a dense, let's say a compacted clay might have a very small shear deformation modulus, let's say a fraction of a millimeter or a couple of millimeters. You push on it only a small amount, and you're going to get all of the strength of the soil that it it, it can give you. uh, a loose sand with low relative density could have a much much higher shear deformation modulus on the order of, you know, tens of millimeters, a couple centimeters, which means you have to shear it quite a bit before you fully develop uh, that stress patch. All right. So here we've got our tau max, we've got some exponential decay, we've got some curve that essentially shear deformation versus shear stress kind of rises like this. All right. And then we can compute um, at each point along our interface we can exactly compute this relative motion. And we do that by, um, through some quantity which is known as the slip ratio. And I'll describe what that is in a minute because it's quite important. All right, so slip ratio, I've mentioned it a couple times. So, and you know, if you're at all familiar with, um, with vehicle analysis, mobility modeling, you've heard this term. So what is the slip ratio uh, of a wheel or a track or a leg? And why is it so important? The slip ratio is basically a, a way to quantify the relative motion between the wheel or the track and the surface. So it's a measure of this relative motion. And um, we typically define it over an interval of negative 1 to 1. And um, when the slip ratio is 1, we can say that the wheel is just spinning its place and not moving. And when its slip ratio is 0, we have pure rolling. And as we said before, that doesn't often happen. And when the slip ratio is negative 1, we have skidding. So this is a, a number to keep in the back of your mind which, generally speaking, ranges from negative 1 to 1. OK. So that's, a, that's, a, that's it. I mean, this is um, 80% of terror mechanics. If you understand that, you're pretty much done. Because then all we have to do is integrate these stress fields. We can do a simple um, uh, force balance and a moment balance. And we can understand um, the forces at an equilibrium state on a, on a given wheel or a track. And so to understand um, the balance of forces in the vertical direction, we simply integrate this way. And there's some component of these normal forces acting in the vertical direction, and some component of these uh, shear stresses acting in the vertical direction. So we're going to end up with with coupled equations between the vertical direction, which is balancing whatever load we're putting on it vertically, and the longitudinal force, which is governing how much thrust we have available. All right? Uh, and then, of course, we can also compute the torque about the wheel axis, which only de- uh, depend on the, the, the tangential forces at this interface. So this is the only reason this, this whole domain is quite is interesting. Uh, the reason is because these equations happen to be coupled and interact nonlinearly, and so you can't just, uh, let's say, write down back-of-the-envelope calculations and be confident um, that you understand what's happening, right? This is a, this is a somewhat, usually, a fairly complex uh, solution space. So I'm going to give two brief examples to illustrate that coupling and the complexity. And these are, this is not the case study, but these are just brief kind of walkthroughs to convince you that there is some um, complexity here that's worth taking a second look at. So let's look at uh, example number one, identifying the maximum allowable load on a rover wheel. So we've got a wheel. Let's say someone gave us a wheel and said, you have to use this wheel. I'm sure this could never happen at JPL because we do things the, you guys do things the right way, right? But let's just say someone said... Here's your rover. How much weight can I put on it? I, want, I really want to put another instrument on this rover, but I'm not sure that it's going to you know, be able to handle it. right? So given the maximum, um, given the size, what's our loading? So we can really step through the equations that I just wrote down and come to some basic understanding um, uh, of this problem. So first we can say that increasing the vertical load from the weight of this additional instrument will increase the sinkage, right? Sigma is proportional somehow to Z to the N, where Z is the sinkage. No problem. Uh, we can then also say that increase in the sinkage is going to increase the motion resistance, right? If we increase the sinkage, we've increased this angle, theta E, which is this exit angle that was defined previously. And We've also increased this term here, probably this uh, motion resistance term. Okay, so this is a bad thing. We're sinking more, and we have more resistance to motion. So um, we're going to say, you know, don't put that instrument on. But, aha, increasing the vertical load um, due to the properties of soil can increase the amount of traction that we can generate. So this... Can, this uh, Part of the uh, more Coulomb failure criteria here uh, Sigma times tan phi, if Sigma is increasing uh, then the amount of soil, the amount of uh, uh, shear stress that we can put into the frictional soil is going to increase as well okay so which of the effects is dominating uh, in which part of the parameter space that we're interested in is really the question that we need to answer we have to have the what's that you have to have the yeah so and there's right and there's a whole lot of other questions that you can ask and at least answer to first order with this type of approach. That's, but that's absolutely true. But we can generally say that heavier vehicles are going to sink more and experience greater compaction resistance, but also develop more thrust. And it might look something like this, and this is just obviously a toy problem, where we can, um, for a given <coughs> geometry, we can increase the load on it, um, uh, going from blue to red and from then from dashed Uh, up again from solid to dashed. So increasing our load is going to increase our sinkage, as we saw. Um, But the interesting thing comes here, where you look at the drawbar, which is, let's say, the net thrust, the thrust minus the motion resistance, the amount of um, capacity you have uh, for motion. And you see in some sets of parameters, uh, we can really only exceed zero drawbar, which is achieve motion. Uh, under a very narrow range of slip conditions, which is so it's probably not a good idea to employ this configuration because only under certain conditions will we be able to move at all, let alone climb over an obstacle, climb up a slope, etc. And as you can see, there's also some peak value here in some of these parameter combinations, which might suggest that, you know, in a perfect world we'd have some sort of traction controller which would keep us at some optimal slip ratio. And in fact, this is exactly what your passenger vehicles do, but something that we don't have the technology yet for Mars rovers. So just a quick example, a snapshot of how we might use first-order calculations to look at some of these problems. Uh, Second snapshot, um, sizing a rover wheel. So now let's look at the other problem. And someone says, well, here's the load we want to carry. How big should the wheels be, right? Fundamental question. Again, we start with the observation that increasing the wheel size is going to decrease the ground pressure and decrease the sinkage, which is a good thing. But we have a couple dimensions when we think about increasing the size. Well, we can make a big skinny wheel or we can make a smaller diameter wide wheel. So which one should we choose? Um, And simply by inspection, we can look at these two equations, one related to the torque and one related to the thrust. We can see that for the torque equation, um, the width, which is a small b here, uh, comes in linearly, whereas the radius comes in as a square term. Um, And Similarly, although not the same for calculation of thrust, we have the width, which is coming in linearly. But the radius, which is coming in through some geometric transform. So as we sink, we have some um, different effective radius. So again, um, the influence here is, generally speaking, we can say non-obvious. All right, so a summary of uh, this kind of really quick cursory description of Terra mechanics. The the hope here is really to illustrate the types of problems that we can address with this uh, set of tools, right? And this um, uh, picture here, which is drawn from one of Becker's textbooks, kind of illustrates, as I think I've shown with these two quick examples, the types of problems we can look at. Here we're looking at different steering and um, drive configurations from a tractor and doing, you know, A, B, or in this case, A, B, C, D, E, comparison studies for performance using these types of analyses, all right? Okay. I'm going to very, very quickly describe some other effects, and then I'll um, go to a case study, and then hopefully we'll have time for a question or two before lunch. So there are some other important effects that I've mentioned um, that we can consider with these types of techniques, one of which is that we can model the effect of the grousers on traction. So grousers, um, as I described, should allow us to increase traction significantly, but, of course, Then the question becomes, well, you know, how should we model these graphs? How should we design them? Should they be big, small? Should they be widely spaced, narrowly spaced? Um, There are empirical studies. You can do empirical studies to try to understand this. And there are also some um, analytical tools that we can bring to bear on this question. Uh, Lateral forces. So implicitly, what I've been talking about is a case where a a vehicle is simply driving straight forward. But of course, there are situations where we want to drive on slopes, where we would want to um, possibly turn, which might be useful. In these cases, we need to generate some lateral force. Uh, This illustration shows the generation of lateral forces on the sidewall of a wheel. In this case, we have essentially two components contributing to force. One is a shearing action on the bottom of the wheel, and another is what we call a bulldozing force, which is essentially a force required to essentially shove soil out of the way. And we have uh, methods from Terra Mechanics for modeling the shearing action, as I've talked about, also the bulldozing action, which again comes back to essentially an analog to a bearing capacity problem. And then lastly, repetitive loading, Um, something that's been brought up a couple times today already. The state of the soil can have a significant effect on the amount of stress that we can draw from it. And this um, plot down here in the lower right, it's a little bit hard to see, but essentially illustrates that. We have here a plot of number of times a vehicle has passed over a particular patch of soil and the amount of thrust that we can pull out of the soil. And we see essentially an increase of 50% from the first pass, to let's say the fourth pass, and the reason for this is that we're, with each passage we're compacting the soil, increasing the relative density, and essentially changing the effective response of the soil. Okay. All right. I want to very quickly um, present a case study, which again is uh, admittedly um, uh, very incomplete and doesn't consider a lot of factors that, you know, a real live engineer would consider when looking at a problem like this. but. Um, again, as an attempt to illustrate the application of some of these tools to types of problems we're interested in this week. So here's a um, a case study for design and performance prediction for, let's say, a MER-like rover, All right. So this is gonna be a um, uh, a wheeled rover, and we know that the MER rover has six wheels, but bear with me for a moment when we will say that this this question of the number of wheels is still an open question, the number and the size of the wheels is something we want to try to analyze and understand. And we're going to try to analyze, in our modeling tools, the performance of a vehicle like this on very dry sand. So this sand, which we've chosen parameters for, um, would be equivalent to like a worst-case sand, so a very loose, uh, granular soil. And so this is what we're going to look at. Given a mass budget, we're going to try to choose the wheel number and geometry. We're going to look at things uh, related to the efficiency of motion of the vehicle. Uh, We're going to compute the required torque, which would then you know, pass back as a requirement for our actuator selection. And we're going to very, very roughly try to estimate what the slope-climbing capability of this rover might be. Okay. So um, let's assume we have a total mass of 180 kilograms, and let's assume for the moment that we bounded our design space to three candidate configurations, a four-wheeled rover, a six-wheeled rover, and an eight-wheeled rover, and with two candidate wheel diameters. And D here refers to the diameter of the actual MER rover wheel, and D over 2 is half that. Okay, so what do we observe by you know turning the crank on some of these analyses? Well, we've got a plot here of the sinkage versus slip. Uh, the legend is here. So going from blue to red, we're increasing the number of wheels, and going from solid to dash, we're dividing the radius by two. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the dash lines are the small wheels. So decreasing the number of wheels and decrease, decreasing the size of the wheels is going to increase the sinkage. Um, And as we might expect, when we're increasing the sinkage, in this case, we're decreasing the the motion resistance and decreasing the amount of thrust that the vehicle can achieve. So if you look at this case of the small wheels here, the dashed lines, um, in every case, we really can achieve, for this particular soil, if we're looking at a bounding case of soil, if this is the worst case soil for this particular soil, we're not achieving positive thrust until we've already generated some appreciable slip here, 0.3 or 0.4, which is relatively, relatively significant. All right. So this might be considered like a no-go regime for this particular parameter combination. We can look at um, what we might call attractive efficiency. Those many, many metrics of efficiency. Let's look at the efficiency where we compare, let's say, the shaft work done at the wheel, so tau times omega, torque times angular velocity, versus the, um, let's say, the longitudinal, the, the work done through over motion in the longitudinal direction. So. Uh, force longitudinal thrust times longitudinal velocity all right and what we see here again is something analogous um, to the previous plot as we might expect uh, from the plot we saw of drawbar pull for the smaller wheels um, there's a large region for which we have an efficiency that's negative so no efficiency which means is to say that this is not a design that's going to generate forward motion right so given work in we're not going to get any work out in the way we want to go all right and we saw we, we also see what we saw in one of the examples is that we have some peak so the nonlinear interaction of these phenomena gives rise to some you know optimal location in the parameter space for our particular design um, and once again in, in you know in principle we could even try to exploit this peak but in practice we may try to choose a particular parameter combination that will make this peak close to our nominal operating conditions that will stretch out this curve flatten this curve so that our peak is as broad as possible Okay. And then finally, we can look at the torque requirement. Um, This is important, obviously, if we're going to ever choose our actuators to go along with this rover. And what we can see here now is uh, sort of the opposite of what we've been seeing previously, in that in this case, uh, you know, having smaller wheels is more advantageous. It requires less torque because we have a smaller moment arm. Pretty straightforward. Okay. And lastly, um, we want to go up slopes. This is something Ray talked about this morning, and this is something that the rovers have been uh, able to do to, um, successfully to varying degrees. Um, and you know, to first order, analyzing the performance of a vehicle on slopes is, is actually kind of easy. What's happening when you travel on a slope is that you've got some component of the gravitational force resisting your motion, You know, mg sine alpha in this picture here, and you also have some reduction of the normal load um, that you're exerting on the surface because you're no longer... Uh, parallel to the gravity vector, okay? And so what ends up happening is we essentially scale down this drawbar pole versus slip curve that I showed a few slides ago. And what we see, in fact, is that now even for the larger vehicles, the the, the, the vehicles with the larger wheels, we have some substantial no-go region, which says that to sur- surmount this 10-degree slope on sandy soil, which is our, our, our model parameters here, we need to... Uh, have a slip ratio which is greater than twenty or thirty percent. And in fact we've seen empirically results something like this in practice with uh, the Spirit and Opportunity rover. Um, but again, generally speaking, if you want to climb up slopes, you'd want to have larger wheels and you'd probably want to have as many wheels as possible. So, you know, um, from an audience perspective now, you're thinking, well, why, didn't, why doesn't Spirit or Opportunity have ten wheels? And then the answer is obviously there's lots of other factors that we're not thinking about here. Um, Related most obviously to you know complexity, reliability, uh, etc. So we can find some. Maybe six wheels was a happy compromise between performance and many of these other factors. Okay. So what I've talked about so far has um, been almost entirely in the context of let's say design and analysis, A to B comparisons. Uh, the relations, however, you know what we're doing now. One of the efforts. Um, that we're pursuing some of the the folks in this room, and what people have done in the past, um, with varying degrees of success, is to use these these equations governing the stresses and the interaction forces to do numerical simulation. All right, so this is now um, uh, using these methods in sort of a a tactical tool, rather than at the design phase. And so this is just um, one array simulations of uh, the Opportunity Rover crossing a ripple He briefly mentioned this case this morning, and we can plot out, you know, all kinds of um, simulated telemetry related to what we expect the slip ratio to be, the rocker and bogey angles, um, the pitch and roll of the vehicle, etc. And, you know, whether or not we believe this, depending on our confidence in these results, can can allow us to do all kinds of um, motion prediction and A-B comparison of particular paths, okay? And so, uh, this uh, is a photo of our lab at MIT, and one of the things that we're doing is trying to calibrate some performances from simulation back with um, at least single-wheel. So not whole rover, rover, but single-wheel experiments um, in a Mars soil simulant. Okay. All right. So I would like to wrap up. Um, again, I haven't given you many of the caveats, and uh, there are numerous, numerous caveats to, to what I presented here. Um, We'll talk about those more tomorrow. But uh, generally speaking, there exists a suite of tools that have been designed specifically for looking at this overlap between soil mechanics and geomechanics and mechanical engineering and vehicle dynamics. All right, And this is what we refer to as Terra mechanics. The key relationships here understanding what's happening in Z, the pressure sinkage, and what's happening in X, which is shear stress and shear displacement. And we can use these tools in a couple of different ways. Uh, So I'm happy to take any questions if there's time. I know that some folks are probably going to tell me all of this is completely useless and wrong. Uh, I hope that's true. It should spark a good discussion. But thank you for your attention. I appreciate it.
0: This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.